because the war on drugs is in reality a war on people who use drugs. And so this is a, a, a slow but sure method of turning the tide on a lot of that. That was Labour MSP Paul Sweeney, and we'll hear more from him later in the show. Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip, and on this episode, I'll be joined by Derek Healy and Callum Ross to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. But first, a summary of the week's biggest national and international politics stories, compiled and read by Alex Watson. The case of two Britons sentenced to death for fighting Russian forces will be raised by the Foreign Secretary during talks with her Ukrainian counterpart. Aidan Aslan and Sean Pinner were convicted of taking action towards violent seizure of power at a court in the Russian-occupied Donetsk region. Troop cuts should be halted to help the armed forces cope with increased demands to respond to emergencies in the UK. Labour made the call as it emerged requests to bring in armed forces to assist civic authorities more than doubled during the pandemic. And Boris Johnson has until autumn to set out a clear Conservative vision for the future, or face being ousted by his own MPs, his former Brexit minister warns. Lord Frost said the Prime Minister could not afford to ignore the depth of opposition he faces within his own party. Thanks, Alex. Scotland has a well-documented problem with drug and alcohol addiction and abuse, and despite so many efforts and flagship policies, it is still a stubborn social scandal. The past week's national politics was clearly dominated by the confidence vote in Boris Johnson's leadership, which we will, of course, get to. But while the theatre of the Commons hogged the limelight, some serious problems were bubbling up. We've reported across our titles at length on the stretched nature of the health services, particularly in the rural north. And we've shown how significant staff shortages and burnout are leaving places, NHS Tayside in one major case, without key specialist cover. Courier political editor Derek Healy reported how the top figures on a Dundee drugs task force quit, while others bemoaned glacial progress. And we saw a report to the Scottish Government this week pointing out a major flaw in the minimum pricing for alcohol plan, which leaves the most at risk worse off. Derek has previously looked at so-called safe drug consumption rooms, illegal in this country, but used in some others, including Portugal. And we reported on bold plans to go alone in New York, despite federal rules apparently preventing it. Before the Stushy this week, Derek spoke to a campaigning Scottish Labour MSP, Paul Sweeney. Paul started volunteering for Glasgow-based activist Peter Krikant in his specially modified drug consumption van when he was unemployed after losing his seat as an MP in December 2019. Now at Holyrood, he hopes to legislate to bring overdose prevention centres to Scotland. Derek started out by asking him how that experience has shaped his view. Well, it it kicked off during the pandemic and uh, it was quite a tough, tough period, you know, um, for a lot of people. Obviously, I was unemployed at the time, uh, so, you know, I saw it as a, as a way of, you know, not just keeping myself busy, but it was also a practical way to sort of follow up on some of the policies and work I've been doing as an MP, uh, having lost my seat in the December 2019 general election. Um, so it was a way of sort of practically testing the issues and, and sort of saying, well, let's actually take it out of the parliament and into the streets. And it was really quite a, an eye-opening experience. This was about as low threshold as you could get in terms of access to a service of some kind. And you still had a lot of people on the streets who were very nervous about it, um, getting access and engaging. But what I discovered was it wasn't just about the act or the mechanics of taking or injecting drugs. Getting a protein bar, getting a cup of tea, 
having a conversation with someone who actually treated you like a human being for 10 minutes. Um, you know, just having some informal pastoral support made the world a difference for a lot of people. Uh, and out of 900 supervised injections, there were nine cases where there was an overdose. And uh, in fact, of those nine overdoses, it was one young girl who overdosed twice. And her particular situation, she was um, a sexual abuse survivor. She was she she'd, she'd been abused in care, so she didn't trust authority figures at all. So she was actually sleeping rough in a tent behind the High Court in Glasgow, and you know it was terrifying for for Peter particularly because he couldn't help but take responsibility for her situation. When she finally came round to trusting him after weeks of being too nervous to come along to the facility, she finally felt she had someone who she could trust, um, and also just the fact that he felt terrified going home at night because he didn't know if he was going to come back the next day and find out that she died overnight um, because the, the service wasn't able to operate 24-7. It was obviously because it was run by volunteers. It was being run on a very sort of temporary basis. Um, so we weren't able to be there all the time. And that was the biggest risk of it, the fact that it wasn't able to be a permanently operating site. Uh, so that kind of kind of demonstrated to me the, vi the vital need for these sorts of facilities because it's getting to a very hard to reach group of people in the community um, and starting to build those interfaces and those connections that over time can help to stabilise people's lives and address the risky behaviour uh, around drug taking. Um, you know, a lot of people use drugs perfectly safely, um, but there are inherent risks. You know, even people who are on a medicated dose of heroin could overdose. It just depends what's in their, you know, what their diet's like that day or, or you know, there's a lot of myths around taking heroin, for example. So it is inherently risky, but we can try and minimise a lot of those risks, whether it's through addiction or whether it's just you know habitual use of, of drugs for a recreational basis. There are ways in which we can try and so solve the public health issues around it. Uh, and I think that was an eye-opening experience for me that of those two overdoses, one was that young uh, girl, uh, the sexual abuse survivor. And the good news is that now she's in a situation where she's in rehabilitation. She's actually working with people now to get herself sorted out. One of the volunteers in the van actually had um, bumped into her in Suckey Old Street a few days ago and she was looking great. She'd put on weight. She was looking good um, and she was in a much better place. So I think that shows you that it's not just about the mechanics of keeping people alive. It opens the door to all sorts of other conversations about getting pastoral support, you know, uh, you know, support for housing, support for your financial situation, uh, psychiatric support if needed, etc. You know, so it's a whole interface that helps to engage people um, who are otherwise left to basically die in shop doorways and in alleyways. It's interesting how you know it's, it's people in the front line of this kind of pushing this forward and and trying to push for change. I, I previously reported on similar centres being opened or similar centre being opened in New York. And I just actually had a statement come through from them the other day confirming that they have now intervened in more than 300 overdoses in their first six months, which is just a, you know, a staggering figure to think about. People will understand when you look at that and wonder how big a dent these kind of centres could make in our own drug death record here in Scotland. What would be your view on that? I think they would stand to make a big impact. It's hard to quantify for sure because there's all sorts of different ways in which drugs are taken. They're often taken in combinations as well. One of the big risks is, you know, taking, for example, methadone, alcohol, heroin, uh, potentially Valium, all in one, all in one go. And it's the combination of all of those interacting in your body that can cause the sorts of problems that lead to an uncontrolled overdose. It can often be taken in private settings uh, because of the nature in which drugs is, is policed in this country. 
people are scared of being interrupted and taking them. So often they are taken in private settings rather than social settings. Uh, and that can often compound the risks faced by people. Um, but what we found with the street injecting population that came to the van uh, in Glasgow and the unofficial pilot was that kind of engagement uh, around, um, you know, just simply getting nutrition was a big part of it. You know, and I haven't seen the video of the, the, the facility in New York that's been piloted. The first thing it strikes you when you watch the video of going into it, it isn't, it isn't medicalised. It isn't a clinical setting. It isn't in a health centre or in a GP surgery. It isn't full of people with uh, sterile equipment and, and plastic gloves on and masks. Uh, it isn't a scary environment to go into. It's actually like going into a cafe or a kind of or a facility which feels homely, feels welcoming. Um, there's the first thing you see is washing machines and showers. You know, for people to get changed, do their uh, do their laundry. There's you know a cafe for people to get a cup of tea uh, or a coffee and you know get some food. Uh, there's sofas and comfortable seating, uh, and there's people there who are friendly and look like peer to peer people. You know people you would recognise as someone like you. Uh, they're not talking down to you, not taking surveys, they're not interrogating you, <laughs> uh, and I think that's a big part of the solution because it makes people feel comfortable in attending them. They're not being set up to fail, they're not being judged, you know, they're not being treated like a, a specimen in a jar. Uh, and I think that's a big part of the problem we've got in Scotland, that the way we approach this is too medicalised and it's it's actually pushing people out uh, who really need their help. Um, and to try and make it less formal, uh, but also competently run uh, is the key. And that's where the successes really came from the New York pilot. I think this, the situation in the US, you know, mirrors the one we have in Scotland in a lot of ways with the different positions at state and federal level looking quite similar to the differences we have with Hollywood and Westminster and having different approaches. In New York, they basically pushed ahead and sort of dared the federal government or the NYPD to do something about it, to step in. If that's if that's what they're going to do, they just went for it. Um, people will look at this, you know, the bill you're proposing and wonder how you're going to make it work legally. You know, how do you get around the fact, you know, the, the most most restricted drugs, you know, it's, it's still a crime to possess them. How do you get around that with this bill and make it work practically? Yeah, I mean, this has been the sticking point for a while and the effort of the bill is expressly to test that issue um, about where does this kind of legal grey area actually sit because no one can say either way. There hasn't been some sort of landmark judgment or legal ruling on it. Uh, and my contention with this bill is that it's a public health issue which has devolved. Uh, it's not a criminal justice issue. Um, to the extent that it interacts with the criminal justice system, we've had the Lord Advocate say that in terms of possession, um, we're actually looking at diversion from prosecution now. Uh, and the diversion would be to these facilities um, to allow for better managed support around drug injection um, and drug consumption generally. So I think that is a big breakthrough in Scotland that we're moving away from the criminalising approach uh, it's not about legalising drugs. There's a big, there's a world difference between legalising and not criminalising someone, uh, and that's a, it's a nuance there that needs to be better understood in the narratives around this issue. Um, but what we're trying to do is manage a currently uncontrolled situation. Because let's not kid ourselves. We know fine well that drug taking happens in every community, in every postcode in Scotland, uh, and it has for years. It's, and we need to actually just understand that reality and try and r remove the major safety problems that are around that. And this is a clear, well-evidenced example of how you can start to do that and solve that problem. 
And luckily, with the Lord Advocate minded to approach this, hopefully we'll see a similar um, you know, mood from Police Scotland uh, as well about dealing with that in that way. And we can move forward. And hopefully this licensing proposal that goes through to the Scottish Parliament, and I've got my consultation on the bill running until the end of August, then we're going to look at the responses and then that will help us draft the bill. Um, you know, the hard part's kind of been getting done at the moment when you're collating all this content and then you need to distill it down into maybe two or three pages of instructions in a draft bill of how this legislation would actually work. So you're having to cream a lot of stuff off there to sort of finally get down to it. But um, I'm confident that that is not going to fall foul of any legal interaction with the UK government. My view is this is definitely something we can do in Scotland now, um, that it's a public health issue. That possession is about the enforcement of that issue. So we are we are dealing with it through diversion for prosecution. Um, there isn't any dealing of drugs. There isn't any in possession with intent to supply. It's about purely small time street users who are carrying a person drugs for personal use. It's not, you know, helpful in any way anymore to put them in the jail because it doesn't solve the problem. We know fine well it's a total waste of public resources. It's much better to manage that situation on the street with a diversion scheme. Um, and that's how we can get around the issue um, of changing the law, because it isn't about changing the law in the sense about drugs, it's about managing the prosecution side in a more sane way and, a, and in setting up a public health infrastructure to actually receive those people. I mean, uh, like yourself, I don't want to get bogged down in the, the legalisation kind of issue because I realise there's different you know factors in, in, at play there. But you know, let's face it, your, your UK leader, Keir Starmer, opposes relaxing drug laws. Um, you know, so even if people go out and vote for the Labour government at Holyrood and the Labour government at Westminster, you know, they're still going to be having to kind of work with the, work with the system or game the system, you know, at best to try and get anything like this through. As somebody who's clearly passionate about this subject, you know, how can that be an acceptable situation for you? Well, I think the issue around the UK Labour Party's views on drug laws is different to how we manage addictions, you know, mm -hmm. and as a public health issue. And I think, you know, Mr. Starmer has said that uh, he is content with this approach in Scotland. You know, I've consulted the leadership of the UK Labour Party on this. I've consulted the, our shadow Home Secretary on this. And they're content with the, the what we're proposing. Um, so there's a world of difference. I think he was referring to formally legalising all drugs, for example, uh, which is a different thing to, you know, um, managing or decriminalising. Uh, you know, there's a very different situation. There's a similar discussion going on with regards to the sex industry with, around the Nordic model versus the decrim model, um, for example. So, you know, it's a, there's a difference between legalising and decriminalising. And I think that's where the nuance has been has been lost a bit. Um, so I think whilst uh, Keir hasn't seen the need for changing the law, uh, that doesn't really, that doesn't really affect this proposal in any way. Um, it's it's more about how we manage it as a, pu a public health issue. I'm I'm really really interested in that. So I mean, the, the the feedback you've had from the UK party has been that they would be open to having some of these centres operating then in, in this kind of way. Well, they're certainly content with what we're doing from a devolved perspective. I don't, I don't know what their proposal is for England. Um, mm. I haven't asked that question, but I, I certainly know that from a Scottish perspective, having you know written to Yvette Cooper. Uh, there was no opposition 
uh, to what we're, what we're proposing. So on that basis, I, I'm, I'm content to proceed. You know, I certainly would have caused problems if there, if there had been some sort of actual opposition to it from, from the UK party, but there hasn't been. Um, and I think, you know, I was down in Westminster on um, Monday uh, with the overdose prevention uh, ambulance with Peter Crikent outside the House of Commons. Uh, we had a lot of Labour MPs coming out with a lot of SNP MPs coming out. Unfortunately, the Conservative MPs weren't really playing ball that day. I think they were preoccupied with the vote of confidence in uh, Boris Johnson. So it was bad timing in that respect. But a lot of interest um, from shadow ministers uh, and backbench Labour MPs uh, and, a, and a general goodwill around the ideas. So I think, you know, whilst not everybody might be there yet in terms of their you know, being convinced about the efficacy of this proposal, um, I think we're slowly but surely turning the tide. And by goodness, we've got decades of prejudice to overturn. There's a lot of ingrained thinking in this country about drugs are bad, therefore ban drugs. Therefore, you know, you have to clamp down hard on any aspect of drug use in a very criminalised, punitive way. And we know that that kind of prohibitions failed miserably because the war on drugs is in reality a war on people who use drugs. Uh, and so this is a, a a slow but sure method of turning the tide on a lot of that. And I, I, I'm a realist. You know, I recognise that we're not going to change everybody's mindsets overnight uh, across the country. And there's a, a degree of management politically that's needed uh, to ease people into these new ways of thinking. Um, and I'm, I'm not wanting to make uh, the perfect the enemy of the adequate at this stage, you know. <laughs> um. I mean, this isn't the only drug policy bill going through Parliament at the moment, you'll be aware. Douglas Ross is working on a right to recovery bill. Uh, it's interesting, your reviews on that, would you, would, do you intend to back that bill as it stands at the moment? Well, I've had really constructive discussions uh, with Anne-Marie Ward and Favour UK in particular, who have been working hard in drafting it. Uh, I'm really sympathetic to the bill. Uh, I think I'm broadly in agreement with its principles. Want to delve in a bit more in the details of some aspects of how it will act. I know there's been certain responses to the consultation um, that have raised some concerns. Uh, and I just want to reflect a bit more on some of those details. Um, but broadly speaking, in terms of the principles of what it's been trying to achieve, I think it's very well-meaning and it's very well-intentioned and you know broadly supportive of what it's trying to achieve in terms of giving people the the you know the right to have the the treatment options available to them, but you know I think there's been a false um, com competition almost between harm reduction advocates and treatment advocates, and I think that's been really harmful to the the, the debate in Scotland. Um, almost they're zero sum games. You know, it's either treatment or it's either harm reduction, and I think that's a foolish a fool's errand to be honest with you and a fallacy because as I just described about the the overdose prevention facility, a big part of that was just building a relationship with people who use drugs, um, potentially in a risky, dangerous way. Um, and people who are very distrustful of authority, you know, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to meet these tests that are set about abstinence and having to do X, Y and Z before you can access treatment. Uh, you need to just meet people where they're at, be patient with them, first and foremost, keep them alive, you know, so that they can actually slowly but surely build a relationship with you. Um, and then build some self-esteem and hopefully in time we'll be in a situation where they're resilient enough to to sort of explore other ways to stabilise their situation. And a lot of people, let's not kid ourselves, most people who use drugs do so in a, the same way that people go down the pub for a, for a pint, you know. Uh, you know, we can't all just assume everybody is a, a leper, you know, or some sort of damaged person that needs, you need, needs the, you know, some sort of evangelical missionary type intervention. You know, that's not what it's about. Um, some people are, 
you know, ill. Uh, they're suffering from an acute illness who do need help. They're at risk of dying. They're at risk of all sorts of other dangerous medical complications, psychological issues um, that do need a lot of intensive work and help. But not everyone's in that situation. We had someone who came down who was a lawyer and was like, oh, I take, I, I use heroin, but I realised the van was here. So I figured, you know, I might be at risk of overdosing in the house. So I thought it might be safer to come down and just do it in a social environment. And it seems it's a safe place for me. Um, and I, I take I take the heroin and I enjoy the hit and then I go on with my life. You know, that, that you know, a lot of people don't realise that is actually fairly normal. Uh, and most people who use drugs do so in that kind of recreational way. Um there are, there are inherent risks, obviously, because what might not be an overdose one day could be an overdose the next day, uh, you know, because it's an inherently risky product that's made by, you know, organised criminal gangs, you know. So, you know, it's not like you've got a, a list of ingredients on the back, like, you know, or or like you would with normal medication. Uh, so it's inherently risky, but there's a spectrum of risk involved. It's, you know, if you don't know what day of the week it is and you're completely high all the time and you're in a fairly difficult situation, you're living on the streets, you're more likely to be at risk of dying of an overdose than you might be if you're, you know, doing it in a more recreational and more controlled way. It's such an interesting topic and we'll be keeping a very close eye on both those bills as they go through and, and, and see how they progress. But Paul Sweeney, thanks very much for, for taking the time to join us. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Derek, interesting mood music about Labour perhaps allowing this policy in Scotland if they were in government in Westminster. It was a fascinating chat with uh, Paul Sweeney there. What, what are the political ramifications of all of this? Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I think Keir Starmer's been very clear that he does not support a change in the law um, to to relax that law on, on, on drugs and possession of drugs. Uh, in Scotland, we've seen the Lord Advocate moving away from criminalising, or in deep, I should say, prosecuting um, very low-level possession offences. That's something they're looking at doing. But this would represent a pretty major move towards this potentially happening um, under a Labour government, which will be of big interest to people who are who are keeping an eye on, on how things are developing at Westminster. Um, you know, there, there has been this impasse and there has been this, you know, this situation where I think at Holyrood they are prepared to look at this, they're open to the idea of it, but there is always that stumbling block of um, the fact that, that drug laws are not devolved. I mean, that is held at Westminster. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating situation to see how that could all play out. The, the SNP government have campaigned on, on a very strong line about devolving power. Um, is that something that Paul Sweeney had, had touched on there as well? There's a bit of a, what did he call it? It was, it was a kind of an unnecessary conflict, really, between people who want full devolution of powers and then people who might try and find ways of making a difference without having to change the law if that's what the UK government are standing in the way of. But that, that I think that's really interesting. So this is this is basically what happened in New York. So they came to the decision that as I said in that interview, they basically said they were going to move ahead with it and challenge the federal government, federal drug enforcement agencies and the New York Police Department. They're going to force them to, to make their mind up, basically. And, and, and what they said was, we're going to change the way we think of this. It's almost like a mind experiment. We're going to say, this is not about um, criminalisation. We're going to look at these facilities as like health facilities. So we're just going to think of it differently. We're not going to think of it as people having drugs on them and taking drugs and, and all that is illegal and things like that. We're going to look at it as, as like a health need and we're going to fill that health need. And then we're going to we're going to push them to do it. You know, that's, that's what Paul Sweeney was saying there. You know, for, for him... When he's spoken to Yvette Cooper and he's spoken to the UK Labour Party, their their position seems to be that actually this is not about having to change drug laws 
um, so that this can be allowed, they're saying that within their interpretation of the existing laws that this this could be allowed to happen and it's just a case of not prosecuting it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a case of mm -hmm. thinking of it differently, basically. Cities like Dundee and Glasgow, um, which is Paul Sweeney's uh, backyard as well, they're often held up as, as the, among the worst of the case study um, you know, regions and cities in, in the country. Some improvement in Dundee recently in terms of uh, drug deaths. And Peter Crichton made sure uh, Glasgow was in the headlines in a big way. But perhaps all's not well behind the scenes. Um, beyond your chat with, with, with Paul there, you was often looking into a bit of a backward step in Dundee in particular this week. I wonder if you could just sort of explain what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, so this this all comes actually quite interesting timing. So while this this conversation has been going on at a sort of national level in Dundee, uh, we've had Simon Little, who is the independent chair of the Dundee Alcohol and Drug Partnership. He's resigned. Now, I, I called Simon Little and I asked him if he wanted to talk about why he's resigned, what are his reasons behind this. He didn't. Um, he didn't want to comment at all, which is obviously fine for him to do. Um, we've I've been kind of speaking in the background to some some other folk who are involved at a senior level uh, in the in the alcohol and drug partnership, and um, what they basically told me is that there are there are growing frustrations in the background over the lack of movement on this. So we had the Dundee Drug Commission um, report. It was a two year update that came out uh, in March, and there's been you know there's been frustrations about the. The, the lack of progress in actually addressing that. As it happens, yesterday um, we had uh, a statement of intent come out from the Dundee Partnership, which is a whole other group uh, made up of um, like kind of city leaders, basically like representatives from the council, the police, the, the local health board, and so on. They came out with a statement of intent, and they are going to publish a more detailed plan of what they're actually going to do to respond to this in the summer. But the reality is, we're two years on from the original Dundee Drugs Commission report coming out. Um, and progress has been slow. We've seen a, a slight progress, uh, sorry, a slight improvement um, on the number of drug deaths for this year. Whether that's sustained over a longer period, we don't know. Um, but I think there's there's a, a tension over the fact that you know to get things actually moving is quite difficult. So one example um, that, that came up in that updated. Uh, report was Constitution House, which is where a lot of kind of drug users they they end up getting filtered through there as a sort as the kind of site of the services basically. And what what they're going to do is break that up and put that yeah. into the community, um, and that's been a that's been something people have want, a thing that people have wanted for a long time. But it's been really difficult to get that moving through these difficult management structures and all different levels um, because, you know, it goes back to being maybe NHS Tayside or different areas and it relies on their processes going through. If you're in the alcohol and drug partnership, you can't, you can't actually really control that. You've got that you've got a scrutiny role, but you can't push them to do it. So it's annoying, yeah. I think, for them. Yeah. Well, you I mean, in that you know, short description there. You you point at so many different partnerships, mm. tasks, task forces, and you know, all kinds of things. And it all makes you just think of red tape and bureaucracy and no one really know what to do. And that's at a, a small level in, in, in one part of Scotland. And then you look at what's been happening at the Scottish government and in parliament, talking shop after talking shop, and people who have been on the front end clearly lost patience with it very early on and just think, well, you know, People said they were listening, and there was going to be a change, and then Nicola Sturgeon stepped in, and but we're still we're still talking about it, and we're still watching other countries get on with it, maybe like New York or Portugal. Um, but we'll we'll see. This is um, 
one conversation that's certainly not going to go away. And and if uh, the UK Labour Party are thinking about it as well now, I mean, it's 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 something that's going to be talked about at, at uh, Westminster as well. But it's not just hard uh, drugs that Scotland's got a problem with. Um, alcohol continues to to take a toll. Um, while the nation was fixated on Boris Johnson's latest tragicomic appearance before his own side, a report slipped out in Scotland. Um, for a bit of background, this is the minimum pricing policy, which sets a floor price for alcohol units, tending to, to make it harder for high volume, deep discount booze getting into to problem drinkers. But, but years after it was heralded by the Scottish government as a real success, there's a, there's a flaw. Uh, Cal, Callum Ross, you, you were looking at this report earlier this week. What, what are the experts saying about our latest uh, approach to alcohol? Yeah, that's right, Andy. I was looking at it, and uh, this was Public Health Scotland, um, uh, which published its kind of final evaluation uh, report on minimum unit unit pricing, which um, you'll remember obviously is introduced in, in May 2018 after a long kind of legal battle. I think the Scotch Whisky Association um, challenged yeah. it. Uh, uh, this report was produced by a couple of universities and and uh, consultancy. Um, and yeah, quite surprising in a way it, it's found, because I, th- I mean, think previous studies had found a kind of re- reduction in, in consumption in the wake of the uh, this policy being introduced in Scotland and also some kind of evidence, I think, of a cut in, in alcohol-related deaths. But this, this report found uh, that there's no clear evidence of a change in consumption um, or severity of dependence on alcohol among this group of people and not just yeah. that that um some some of these kind of people in economically vulnerable groups um you know experience such an increase in financial strain and they weren't reducing their consumption what they were doing was was cutting back on other things like food and utilities you know paying their their bills so um you know that will have been quite worrying you've got to um, uh, imagine for the scottish government who as you say you know championed it for a long time and, and nicola sturgeon in particular was you know a, a big proponent of this uh, and so it'll be interesting to see what they they do um next on it because you know there were calls to increase Price from fifty p to sixty five p and, and and other sums, so it'll be interesting to see how they respond to this report. Well, this one was a big political um, divide when it first came along. The, the conservatives were were dead against it, and I seem to remember Labour describing it as a, a real kind of blunt instrument. But they got on board, and it was only a change at the top of um, the conservatives that led to them saying, "No, let's let's go for it. We'll we'll back it." And it seemed like everyone was on the same page, but. There will be those same people who had reservations now thinking, well, what have we done here? We've 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 brought in a policy that's not helping people at the really the worst end. And then, as a, you know, Derek was describing earlier, the groups that are set up to uh, to pick up the pieces really they're they're not they're not functioning. <laughs> so there's a there's there's a deep rooted problem here. Um, of course. I was just mentioning as well while we were talking about that minimum alcohol pricing thing, um, the the report from Public Health. The there was a big distraction, which was Boris Johnson and and no confidence. Um, well, we're trying to get sort of behind that today and talk about all the things that were going on. But I mean, we can't we can't ignore the fact that while we're talking about policy, you know, not functioning properly, the people who run the country are turning in on themselves and voting for. 
voting about whether or not someone should be the Prime Minister or not, and then limping on into the next election or not. We've got Douglas Ross, the Scottish Conservative leader, who's now at odds with the Prime Minister. I mean, Derek, while you're you're thinking about you know, changing the law and talking about what people are asking for. What, what, how big a distraction is this when we've got such a huge, you know, sideshow happening right there in the middle of Westminster? Well, I think I think it distracts from everything, doesn't it? Really, I think every story you now see coming out of Westminster has that has that question attached to it. You know, is this because it's Boris Johnson trying to save his own skin type thing? You know, we saw that announcement about. Um, people being able to buy their houses when they're on benefits and so on. I mean, I think it just shows how fast politics moves because I think the last time I was on the Stussy a couple of weeks ago, um, the question was, has Boris Johnson got away with it? And now two weeks later, there's been a vote. He's, you know, he survived the vote and, um, yeah, and, and, and we're still on the same kind of topic, but it has got a totally different kind of angle to it now that he's, he's obviously survived that vote. So it's just fascinating. I think, yeah, it's, I think it's, it's an impasse, isn't it? And it's difficult to see how we're going to move past that right. over the next couple of months and couple of years maybe till we get to that election. Well, those same people who at, say, Dundee level that we were talking about, um, that are the, the councillors, they, they've got their own views as well. So the Conservatives are all further levels down from Parliament to Holyrood um, to the councils, they've all got problems now. How do they tell their electorate what they think and how do you know what your politicians, you know, what's going on in their head at the moment? I mean, you, you, you looked at some of the, the different conservative um, groups across the, the country. What, what, what does it show? I was going to say we asked them. <laughs> That's how we found out, um, and they're very smart, yeah. I must say. Um, you know, so Craig Fotheringham and Angus, he's a Conservative group leader there. Um, he basically said it's time to move on. You know that, that he didn't agree with anything that was going on in Downing Street. He, you know, he was appalled by it. Thought it was totally wrong. But his view was that um, there's been a vote. The MPs that we elected as a country are in, and they had a choice to. You know, they had the chance to make their own say on it, and they decided to stick with them. So his view was it's time to move on and let them get on with it. But I think it's safe to say that was not the view yeah. shared by everyone. Um, so we also spoke to John Duff and, no. and Perthick and Ross and Derek Scott and Dundee, uh, and both of them said that if it, was, if it was up to them, they would have voted to get them out. And as far as they're concerned, um, you know, it's a, it's a matter of standards in public life, and it's time for them to go. They, they stick by that view. We, we talked to um, um, Murray, council as well that the group there because for obvious reasons Douglas Ross representing that patch at Westminster and lucky for him they, they fell in line with Douglas Ross saying that yeah they don't have they don't have confidence in the Prime Minister the the Highlands shared that view but uh, Callum the, the North East sort of taking a, a sort of sort of a little step to the side I mean what what's the view in places like Aberdeenshire Aberdeen where the Conservative vote held up quite well at the May election that's right Andy it was our, our colleague Adele had spoken to um, conservative group leaders in the uh, uh, in the prison journal area, and um, yeah, you're right. Well, well, Murray and Highland were happy to kind of give their back into to Douglas Ross's position. We she found that um, the Tory leaders in Aberdeenshire and in Aberdeen City, Mark Finlater and and Ryan Houghton, uh, um, basically refused to to be drawn on there whether or not they have confidence in Mr Johnson uh, which is quite interesting it is I mean Aberdeenshire um, northeast generally it's become such a key area for um, the Conservatives a big battleground with the SNP there you've got the kind of big Brexit vote at the time in Aberdeenshire the kind of fishing communities and stuff as well so whether that comes into it you've also got David Ducat mm -hmm. the Banff and Buchan MP who um I think it was one of the ones who 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 backed Johnson. So maybe there's there's um, 
uh, one of only two Tory, Scottish Tory MPs to back Mr um, Johnson. So yeah. maybe that comes into it as well. They don't really want to be undermining their, their local uh, MP, but it, it gets a bit complicated for them, uh, I think, and it's going to be yeah. interesting to see how it plays out. Well, that is definitely it for this week. Lots to get around there. Thanks to Derek Healy and Calm Ross for joining us and producer Morvin McIntyre. And of course, to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more. But until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster, and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following the Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushi Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.